Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the, uh, to the Lord against its people is so great, that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your, for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. Is it, it, is, uh, it is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. 
Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to live with us, as is, the custom, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she laid down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so that we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our God above, we ask that you would use your word to speak to your people. We ask, Father, that the words of Christ would be caused to dwell in us richly and that your very breath would be um, breathed out upon your people, the words that are here in this word. We ask, God, that you would uh, cause your word to go forth and accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Genesis uh, 19 this morning, we come to a text where, uh, if we were given the choice, uh, many of us, I believe, would simply skimp or skip or pass by this particular text and these particular words. I mean, this uh, scene, this account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, is not exactly one of those highly devotional parts of Scripture that you run to to be edified by or that you uh, long for and run to when you're feeling discouraged or struggling with faith. It's not a text with a really great hero in the story, just one half-hearted saint who is saved seemingly by the skin of his teeth. And more often than not, this is one of those uh, biblical histories our children grow up. Uh, if they do hear it in Sunday school, it will be watered down extremely, uh, explaining away what is truly happening here in this text. And given the choice, many Christians would be far more comfortable to move right past Genesis 19 in order to hear 
about the struggles and the triumphs of Abraham. Because this passage that we are in, it is gritty, it is dark, it is offensive, it is overwhelmingly a troubling passage in Scripture. Truly, uh, it is not any preacher's dream text to preach on, but that is the joy of preaching through a book uh, consecutively, as we've been doing through Genesis this far, is that you take it all in, those parts that you love, those parts that you'd rather move past quickly, all of it, because these words God has indeed spoken. These are his words. This is his word breathed out, and God has placed all of these words in this book for our good. Every historical event, every story has a purpose. And if God himself reveals something particular in this place, in this particular place for our good, then we would be, do well to not be more prudish than the Bible itself. We need not sanitize what God has written and can look at fool in the face, even if we don't like what we see. So why this passage here? Why would God include this scene of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible? I mean, surely it is one of the most infamous texts in all of Scripture, one that is repeated throughout the whole of the Bible again and again, perhaps more than any other passage in the book of Genesis. It's spoken about in Judges chapter 19. It appears again in Ezekiel chapter 16. Isaiah and Jeremiah both speak of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is an infamous account according to the scriptures. Again and again, we see it up here, even in the New Testament, spoken about Christ himself when he cursed those cities who witnessed his miracles and yet still deny that he is the Christ and what he is saying, saying it will be better for for Sodom and Gomorrah in that last day than these particular towns that his miracles were performed in. But what is this text about? Why is it here? Very simply, the text points us to the reality of a God who judges. That is the essence of this text. There is a God who must be just. He must do what is right, as Genesis 18 has even said. And in doing what is right, judgment must fall upon the guilty. And so the first thing we see this morning here in this text in verses 1 through 14 is the judgment of God, the judgment of God. Our text opens up, and the first thing we see here are two men who are on their way to Sodom in the evening who meet Lot at its gates. And right away, the text recalls to our mind what just happened a moment ago in Genesis 18 when Abraham is sitting at the tent in the heat of the day and men appear who Abraham welcomes. It's a very similar situation if you compare and contrast what's going on there. Lot sees these men coming and he rises to greet them. He offers them his hospitality very much like Abraham has done. But there are a few differences here. Something more ominous is going on in this particular text. The language here of evening time is not just a coincidence to the text. It is intentional foreshadowing of a coming darkness, one that has been alluded to even as early as chapter 13 when we were told that the Lord had had not destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah at this time. So that by verse 1, when we get to this particular text, we know what's going to happen. 
Something dark and dreadful is coming for Sodom. It will be coming for them soon. And as darkness draws near, Lot sees these two coming, and he offers his home to these two travelers. There is some hope in this text that even as darkness is coming, there will be refuge from it somewhere. But you'll notice, Lot's not the same man that we saw back in chapter 13. In chapter 13, Lot set his tent near Sodom as a tent dweller. You'll remember he separated from Abraham because the land could not sustain them both. And he moved to the green grasses of Sodom, taking full advantage of the best pasture land. Well, now Lot is no longer a tent dweller on the outside of town. He is living inside of the city. He's become permanently identified with this Place. He's not a sojourner here anymore. He is not just passing through. He lives here. He is identified with this place. But notice, he doesn't just live here. Now we see him sitting at the gate, at the entrance of the city gates. This is a place that was reserved for the rulers of the city, where the matters of the civil affairs would be brought out and decided over and judgment would be passed at this particular place if things were uh, 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 needing to be decided. Lot sits here at the entrance of the gate now, no longer a sojourner, living within the town as one who judges the affairs of the city. He is a man of this place. But you'll notice, Lot invites these two men to his home. There are still inklings where he doesn't quite belong to this city, and we'll see that fleshed out as we move along. And he invites these two men to his home. And after they first reject the invitation, which is just interesting that they do that. But then Lot goes on and he presses the men, persistently urging them to come to his home. The language is very strong here. It is very forceful here. It is almost as though Lot is grabbing them by the hand and saying, come with me if you want to live. And if you know what's good for you, come, spend the night with me and leave early in the morning before anyone else notices that you were even here. Lot is acutely aware of the danger that awaits strangers and outsiders to the people of Sodom. And so he takes these two in in order to protect them from this city, to keep its dangers at bay, if only for one night and for the sake of these men, only to have the danger come knocking at his door kind of reminds you of the parent who does everything possible to protect their children from the sinful influences of the world, doing everything in their power to keep their kids out of sin's harmful way, only to one day come home and find their son with a dirty magazine that he found, or to hear their daughter has heard foul language for the first time from a teacher or from a family friend. The protection Lot tries to set upon these men fails. And now, all the violence and greed and danger of the city that he was trying to keep outside of the walls of his home have come knocking in on his door. They have come to meet him in his very home. They don't come to care for the strangers, to love the outsiders. They come to take whatever they can from them. And notice what the text says. Who comes? Now, all the men, all the old and the young, all the people to the last man come out to this 
house. And they come together with one purpose, and it's not to play checkers with these guys. No. They come to violently and carnally exploit these men. Notice, the root sin here is not just homosexual behavior. We often reduce it down to make it speak to our day more clearly. It's broader than that. This is an all-encompassing sin before us. We're supposed to see how far indeed creation itself has been turned upside down in this particular scene. It's no longer Adam and Eve consenting to know one another and growing and being knit together in love and unity. Instead, the whole created order is being turned upside down here. An entire city, a collective group has turned out to perform forced homosexual practices upon two innocent men. How far mighty mankind has fallen. The curse echoes everywhere here. Men have become so depraved that nothing is beyond their capability. The sin here is so far-reaching. The whole city has come together and become so utterly corrupt in all its ways, so blind to who they are as image-bearers of God that they will take all they can from these strangers, even their very lies, if it need be, as they take things by force from them. To limit God's judgment upon Sodom to only their homosexual practices misses the point of the text, there are multiple layers of sin at work here. And this is the norm. Notice this is a whole city that has accepted this as perfectly rational. As Lot comes out to defend it, they go, you're crazy. Of course this is normal, you outsider. But Lot, he indeed, he goes out and he pleads for his guests. These ones who have been brought under his protections and he pleads with these men, and he says, friends, the Hebrew word literally is brothers, my brothers. Here's a city gathered to bring harm against helpless strangers, and Lot calls them brothers. He aligns himself with them after living with them for years. He sees himself as the same with them. He doesn't say, but then he goes on, and he has a different morality from them. He says, don't do this wicked thing that you are about to. It starts out okay. You're going, Lot, good, good. You're protecting your guests. But then Lot does the unthinkable. And he offers his two daughters to the men. And in his zeal to protect his guests, he does something he knows is not right. He forgoes his responsibility to protect his own family. He thinks he has to choose between one or the other, he has a choice to make in his own mind, and he uses this twisted logic to get where he does. I mean, this is something we have a really hard time wrapping our minds around. This is messed up. But this twisted logic is at work here where he is seeking to protect someone by offering a substitute of some kind in their place. But it is inconceivable to us. And we are made completely by this, and rightfully so. We want to say, who, who is this guy? What kind of Christian is he? I mean, how could he willingly stand by and allow something so horrible to happen to his own family and think that it is better than it happening to, his strain, to these strangers? Well, regardless of what we think, I mean, the point here actually is that Lot's plea has no effect on the men of Sodom whatsoever. 
They only scoff at him, basically saying, who is this guy? They don't even use his name here. You know, he calls them friends, he calls them brothers, but he remains nameless as they appeal to him. Who are you, you nameless one, you who sit and judge over us? You are a stranger to us. You don't belong here. We know there is a difference between you and us, and now we will do worse to you than those two men in your house. And as they press towards him, the angels come out and, or, and grab Lot and they blind all of the men present. The idea is this blinding light appears and they all go blind so that they wear themselves out groping for the door. They cannot find it, yet they still continue to seek after it. And within a matter of minutes, as the angels bring them into uh, the helm, they say, okay, look, here's the skinny bell. Here's the long and the short of it. You, you need to get your family, and you need to go run for the hills. You know, we've seen enough. In only a matter of, of, of minutes, maybe a few hours, we've witnessed for ourselves the reason for this outcry against Sodom. And so the Lord is going to destroy this city. Notice how quickly this sentence passes Nothing more needs to be seen by these angels. Sodom will be destroyed in the holy wrath of God's judgment. But he will not do it without first delivering the righteous. Delivering the righteous. I love how God works in this second half here. God delights in delivering his people out of judgment. It is a pattern that we see all throughout the scriptures the righteous are always delivered out of God's judgment, whether it be by a boat, as you see in the Noah account, or by walking through walls of water that uh, threaten your life. God always makes a way for the righteous people of God to pass through the judgment safely onto the other side. And that's what we see here. Lot is going to be delivered, he and all his household, if they are willing and so Lot goes, and he goes and speaks to his sons-in-laws, and they laugh at him when he tells them, look, this place has become so depraved, so contrary to nature, that God is going to destroy it, is going to wipe it from the face of the earth. And his sons-in-laws laugh at him. They mock him. Lot, you've never spoken of anything like this to us before. Why should we believe you now? This is a joke to them. You must have had too much wine to drink or something, you crazy old man. And so Lot leaves them in their place, and Lot gathers his family, yet the text says he still lingers. That is the language here. And really, this is impossible for us to wrap our minds around fully. I mean, Lot knows that God's judgment is coming, that God is going to destroy this city. He knows Sodom is so wicked that it ought to be destroyed, yet he still has a, is held by it. It's not easy for him to let go of this place, and so God acts instead. And he is merciful to God, the text says, and the angels take Lot physically by the hand. They lead him out of the city forcefully and with urgency, much in the same way that Lot led the angels to his home. And they tell Lot, run for the hills, but don't look back. Don't long for this city anymore, lest you be swept away in the judgment that is coming. And Lot delays again with a different way, in a different way, saying, oh, let me go to this little Zoar. Isn't it just a little city? 
And it's very interesting, but Lot's basic plea is, I know it's a sinful town, but it's so small. You know, it's just a little sin, sin in the eyes of the Lord. It can't be all that bad, right? Just spare this little place of sin for me, please. And again, God allows it. But you have to wonder, why is Lot so afraid to run to the mountains? There's only two things that would make Lot make this request. One is that he still loves Sodom and this place. He's still coping with the fact that he has to remove himself entirely from this place. But also, remember, who's in the mountains? Abraham is in the mountains. He is the one who was looking down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and pleading with the Lord for it. What will Abraham think of this man who went away from Abraham, wealthy and great, and now he escapes with nothing but his family and the clothes on his back? Not even his entire family escapes with him. His sons-in-laws remain behind, and now... As Lot and his family go to Zoar, Lot's wife turns to gaze upon Sodom. And we don't learn much about her in this text, but it's obvious from her actions here, she does not want to leave. She longs for Sodom. She thinks of Sodom as her home. And God, knowing the heart, turns her into a pillar of salt, basically saying, you know what? If you love it so much, you can share its fate. And she turns into a pillar of salt, becoming this image of barrenness and death. In the biblical world, salt was scattered across the place to condemn it to barrenness and desolation. That place would become a cursed place, a place where nothing would then be able to grow upon the ground. And now Lot's wife is herself become a pillar that will be scattered across a cursed land, truly you begin to realize how in the world did Lot make it out of Sodom unless it was by the skin of his teeth. And truly, that is how he made it out, by the skin of his teeth. He has nothing to be proud of. He has nothing to return in triumph to Abraham in his life. He hasn't been living a victorious Christian life. And the text zooms out for a moment as it considers all of this coming to full circle where it began with Abraham looking down from the mountains, the place where Lot was afraid to go. And Abraham looks and what he sees is fire and brimstone and he sees smoke and desolation and he knows, even as he views it, in Genesis, or according to chapter 18, that the Lord over all the earth did what was right. He judged the wicked of the earth and the righteous he delivered by sending Lot out from its midst. So what do we make of all of this? Here we have this story, this history where a whole city was so wicked it was judged while one man and half of his family escaped. Why were some given refuge and not all? Why were some delivered and others judged? I mean, Lot isn't exactly the guy we all uh, uh, expect to be delivered, right? I mean, this guy isn't winning any parents of the, uh, Parent of the Year awards. Why him and not others? Does this story center upon how God or how good people will be delivered and prosper and bad people will be punished? Is that the heart of this text? 
Clearly not. If you've seen half of what John, uh, Lot is and see what his character is, who he is in this text, yet people of God. The two New Testament makes it plain to us. It interprets for us what we are seeing here, saying that this judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, what you see here in this chapter, it is really about the fate of the world in the last days. That's what Luke 17 tells us when it says the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving each, being given in marriage, selling and planting and building, acting as though no judgment of God would fall when suddenly it did. Fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. And then it says this, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On the day Christ returns, men will be living their lives, acting as though no judgment is going to come down from heaven against the ungodly, acting as though there is no God in this place because he delays in his judgment. That is what the point is here. Second Peter tells us the same thing, saying, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them into extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Notice, Peter makes no bones about what this day happened for. It is to demonstrate what will happen to the ungodly. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But Peter goes on here, speaking of the same day, speaking of the righteous who are found on that day. And he says of that day that God rescued, he says of that day, God rescued righteous Lot. Interesting language. Who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. Three times he is called righteous. Notice Peter says the day that fire rained down on Sodom. It wasn't just about God's judging the ungodly. God being a holy God who cannot look upon sin in his justice, he has to destroy the wicked. He has to be just so that we will see what will happen on the last day and as it will be fleshed out here. But that day was also about God delivering the righteous, even righteous Lot. I don't know what you think of Lot exactly, but I do think a good question to ask is how righteous is Lot? I mean, just look at him through this passage. Here is a man who has compromised his Christianity on multiple levels, even coming to a point where he lives in the city of Sodom himself. He offers his daughters to be violated by the men of Sodom. Any father's nightmare. He escapes the city of destruction only because he left everything behind. By the end of the story, He is just a sad case. His life ends in tragedy. He ends up living in a cave, this one who was as great and wealthy as Abraham himself. And he doesn't even have, by the end of the story, control over his own body. Becoming the father of Moab and Ammon, both peoples who become the enemies of Israel through incestuous relationships. I mean, do we really want to hold Lot up as an example of righteousness to follow. Peter, surely he is no hero. But that's not Peter's point, is it? 
Peter's point is that on that day, this man escaped because he was righteous. Not because he was an example of righteousness. He was counted as righteous. And because of it, he escaped the judgment. This is always a point here. And this is always a point that is hard for us to wrap our minds around. Most of us look down on Lot in this situation when we read about him in Scripture. We don't think we're like him in any way, thinking we're more like Abraham, right? Walking by faith and not, and not by sight constantly. Yet how many of us are not affected by the culture around us? How many of us do not grow used to the uh, acceptable sins of a culture? The ones that are within our own very lives, influenced by a licentious culture. How many of us are afraid to speak of a coming judgment to our family in fear of being mocked and laughed at? I'm sure, in fact, none of us have been influenced by the culture of Sodom, who Ezekiel 16 says was judged because they lived in pride and in excess of food and prosperous ease, who did not aid the poor and the needy. These are the reasons Sodom was judged. Nevertheless, with all of these in the background, with all of these influences upon Lot's life, God calls Lot righteous anyway. Why? For two reasons. Because God had compassion on him. According to verse 16, the Lord had mercy upon him. He showed him compassion. Not because he was great, Not because he was worthy, certainly not because of his character, but because of God's character. Because God is both just and justifier, he has compassion upon whom he will have compassion upon us. Romans 9 tells us. But secondly, God calls him righteous because in verse 29, he remembered Abraham. In other words, Abraham had interceded for him. Abraham had acted as a mediator for Lot. Though Lot is a shame-filled sinner with nothing of great value to offer God, God calls him righteous anyway because of his own compassion and because a mediator stands between him and judgment. And beloved of God, that is exactly what we need too, isn't it? We need God to have compassion on us, a people who are not fully righteous, who do not keep the fullness of God's law at every point of it, who fail to keep the influences of the culture at bay in our lives, who know what God requires of us, yet we fail to do it anyway. We need a mediator between God and man. We need someone for God to look upon and say, for his sake, I will count you righteous. We need a Savior. We need a Messiah to intercede for us, to plead his precious blood so that when either our death or that last day indeed comes, God will say, this one, I count him righteous. He has escaped my just judgment because I have had compassion on him and remembered that Christ Jesus, who died on his behalf and rose again from the dead, interceded on his behalf. This one is my child. I have set my love upon him. I have been compassionate to him. Therefore, I declare him righteous. People of God, we are more like Lot than we would ever care to admit. But thanks be to God 
for what he has done in Christ Jesus, declaring a people righteous, all those who by faith rest and receive Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He has declared you, people of God, righteous if you hold these truths fast. He has spoken a better word over you, but don't live out the rest of your days like Lot. Turn in gratitude for the deliverance that he has brought for you. Live your life unto the Lord as unto God himself, even as Abraham has done. For surely he has given you something so great, declaring someone who is a filthy, vile sinner righteous. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, We thank you that you are a God who is both just and justifier. You are one who cannot allow sin to be slid underneath the rug. You must deal with it. And Father, you have dealt with it for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has become the propitiation for our sins. He is our substitute in our place. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ, that it is such a righteousness that we need not even fear our own inabilities. It is so righteous that you called Lot righteous. Father, we do pray that you would forgive us of our sins and that this reality of being declared righteous would not lead us into more sin and decadence, but that it would lead us to live godly, righteous, and sober lives unto the glory of your holy name. And we pray, Father, earnestly that you would cause us to see Jesus high and lifted up. Turn our eyes to see him. Let us flee to the cross. For with him and in that place there is forgiveness for our sins. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.